Hey, Kaniacs, Adam Gold here, and I'm the host of the Canes Corner Podcast. And sadly, hurricane season came to an end about 10 days ago. But in the interim, as we ready more Canes Corner podcasts for you in the very near future, I wanted to make you aware of a really good podcast, and we're going to share one of these episodes with you. It's called The Brief History of Triangle Sports, and it's hosted by my friend and former partner, Joe Obvious. The podcast is about how all of these college fan bases that we have in this area, in the Triangle, sort of converge at PNC Arena and commiserate over the Carolina Hurricanes. We're all one big melting pot of college fans, although more of a pro NC State building than anything else PNC Arena is, I guess for obvious reasons. Maybe it's the red seats. Anyway, this episode features former Hurricanes radio play-by-play guy Chuck Caton, an original Hartford Whaler and then an original Carolina Hurricane until a few years ago, and Chuck guides us through how we became Carolina Hurricanes country. You can find and follow a brief history of Triangle Sports wherever you get your podcast. Here's Joe Ovius and Chuck Caton. June 19th, 2006. A lot of you listening right now understand the significance of that date. If it's not ringing a bell, it is arguably the most important date in North Carolina professional sports history. It's the day the Carolina Hurricanes won the Stanley Cup. In game six, Eric Cole makes a dramatic return, but it turns out to be the only bright spot in a 4-0 Canes loss. So the series comes back to Raleigh after all for game seven. But if any seeds of doubt had been planted, Aaron Ward uproots them with this first period goal that gives the Canes a 1-0 lead. Then in the second, another defenseman, Frank Caberlet, doubles that Canes advantage. And Cam Ward caps off a Con Smythe postseason with this spectacular third period save. And a team, some pick to finish dead last, finishes dead first. The Carolina Hurricanes hoist the Stanley Cup. The Carolina Hurricanes winning the Stanley Cup in 2006 was an unbelievable experience. And it was the one and only time I legitimately cheered in the press box. I was a fan that night. And I was perfectly okay with it because we had never seen anything like it in the area. Think about it. The Carolina Hurricanes are the only team in the triangle that everybody can get behind with no weird rivalry dynamics. But that was our relationship with the Carolina Hurricanes. It was our team. But it's important to remember that it was somebody else's team before that. And for some within the Carolina Hurricanes organization who had made that move from Hartford to Greensboro to Raleigh, Winning the Stanley Cup in 2006 was a little more complicated. The Triangle has the most unique landscape for sports. Three major universities along Tobacco Road with rabid band bases. A Stanley Cup champion. An NFL team right down the road. And heavily invested transplants. Not to mention an interesting mix of sports teams that were... Joe Ovius brings you a brief history of Triangle Sports, a candid conversation with those who help shape why sports matters here. The Hartford Whalers became the Carolina Hurricanes in 1997. The Canes, as you know them today, with a Stanley Cup, playoff success the last four years, deep roots in the community, a vibrant youth hockey organization. None of that existed in 1997. 
I distinctly remember hearing from sports talk radio callers before the 2002 Stanley Cup run that hockey did not belong in the state of North Carolina. NC State fans who did not want to share a building with this hockey team that didn't give them truly NC State red seats. Yes, that was a thing. Of course, the biggest problem for hockey is a barrier of entry. I learned the basics from hockey from a video game. Shout out to NHL 93, NHL 94. Hockey did not translate well on television before HD took over, which is the reason why the Carolina Hurricanes at one point had a slogan that went by, you'll know when you go. So you had to learn. And there was one man who made it really easy to understand. Enter Chuck Caton, former radio play-by-play announcer for the Carolina Hurricanes, a larger-than-life personality who got his start with the Hartford Whalers. Caton's distinctive announcing style packed in a lot of information. It was also highly educational, and an entire generation of Carolina Hurricanes fans learned the game of hockey thanks to him. How did you end up being a hockey play-by-play man for the Hartford Whalers? Well, that's a good story. Uh, I was working at the University of Wisconsin uh, doing football, basketball, hockey in the Big Ten, and that was uh, back in the, well, I went there in 1975 after being at the University of Michigan, Mm -hmm. and so in the summer of 78, I got a phone call out of the blue after doing the NCAA playoffs. Wisconsin had a great hockey team, as they still do today, and we were in the NCAA uh, uh, Final Four in Providence, Rhode Island. So I'm doing the game, and little did I know that there was a scout with the New England Whalers sitting next to me uh, on Radio Row. Mm -hmm. And so I did the game. Uh, It ended up where the the Badgers lost to Boston University. Jim Craig was on that team, Dave Selk, Michael Ruzioni, uh, and they beat the Badgers. So we go and play the consolation game, beat Bowling Green, then come home. And about two months later, I got a phone call out of the blue at, at my house I don't know how I got tracked down, but it was a uh, a gentleman from the New England Whalers who asked me if I was interested in doing play-by-play okay. for New England in seven, 1978. Now, you've got to remember that this was the WHA, and I kind of curtly told the gentleman that I'm not interested because I've got two kids, I've got a good job, and the WHA, I feel, is going to fold. Mm-hmm. And it ended up folding a year later, so I was right. And he says, well, yeah, you know, no, I, I understand how you feel, but I, I really think we're going to be in the NHL someday. So regardless of this, there were six teams left in the WHA at the time, and he said uh, that, oh, well, we're pretty confident that we'll be in the NHL someday. And I said, well, I'm glad you are. I'm not because my (laughs) NHL sources tell me that I think that the the league is going to fold and that the NHL is not going to accept anybody. I don't care if Wayne Gretzky plays for Edmonton (laughs) or not. But your sources were wrong, Chuck. Well, here's what happened. They were and they weren't. Okay. Because uh, fast forward to the next summer Mm -hmm. and a couple of things happened. Uh, The people that were basically against the teams from the WHA to come in, and there were four – that petition to come in. As I said, it was a six-team league, uh, but the two that got left out were the Birmingham Bulls and the Cincinnati Stingers. Other than that, you had the Edmonton Oilers, you had the Quebec Nordiques, the Winnipeg Jets, and the, and the New, and then New England Oilers. Well, 
they still didn't want, they being Montreal and Boston. Boston had its own agenda because they'd already butted heads with New England, yeah. playing in Boston Garden and not paying rent. Uh, the Whalers never paid their rent. They they left at the <laughs> they, they actually had a Zamboni block their locker room. That's a story in itself. They had their equipment, and, oh, and poor oh. Skip Cunningham, who I hope is listening to this <laughs> podcast, would attest to this because he was there. Uh, and and uh, the the Bruins basically locked in the Whalers' equipment and stole their equipment because they hadn't paid their bills at the so Boston Garden. So they put a Zamboni in front, in front of, the, front of door. the door so they couldn't take the equipment out. That's amazing. It is. And so <laughs> anyway, while that was going on that summer, you had uh, – well, that was the Bruins being upset. And, of course, Montreal did whatever Boston did. So in terms of the voting, all of those powers in the uh, then 17-team NHL said, no way we're letting these WHA teams in. And that was in that summer of 78. And so that's where I got my information from. And then everybody loves a nice brew, don't they? Mm-hmm. And they like Molson. Yeah. And guess who? The Montreal Canadiens were owned by at the time. Molson. Yeah. So uh, a uh, there was a concerted effort by fans across Canada, especially in Edmonton, especially in Winnipeg, especially in Quebec, uh, that they would boycott Molson products. Interesting. And that changed Montreal's vote. They told Boston that they're changing their vote. They want to accept these teams. So in June, basically, of 1979, the four WHA teams were uh, merged into the NHL with uh, the help of Howard Baldwin, who was the uh, managing partner of the Whalers. He had a great relationship with the then-president John Ziegler of the NHL. Mm-hmm. So, uh, And they were funded by Aetna Life and Casualty Insurance, as well as other major corporations in Hartford. They had moved, of course, from Boston to Springfield to Hartford by that time, and they had a very solid financial base. Mm-hmm. So the NHL wanted a team like Hartford, even though it was a small town sitting between Boston and New York. But there was money. There was money, and there was a... Uh, there was excitement about hockey being a New England city. So then did you reach back out to the organization no, or did that, they circle back? That's the interesting thing. They circled back in okay. the vernacular of today. Uh, what happened was I picked up the paper and on June 3rd, 1979, I see the merger take place. Mm-hmm. And I turned to my wife and I said, well, I guess they were right. You know, uh, they are merging. <laughs> and then in August, two months later, and I'm down, I'm doing, you know, sports and get ready for the Badger football season, the hockey season. The phone rings, and it is a gentleman with a heavy New England accent. Hi, I'm Bill Bonds of the Hotfoot Whalers. <laughs> and, you know, I can't even do it. He's now passed on. He was a wonderful human being. He was a marketing director of, uh, of the Whalers at that time, and he was the guy in charge of hiring the broadcaster. So my first question after he called me was, why are you calling me back? Uh, you had this opening last year. Who got hired and why did they get fired? And there was a backstory to that. It was a guy named now the late Bob Newmeyer, who people may know from horse racing fame and NBC mm-hmm. and the Boston Bruins. He was the New England Whaler announcer. Not He was popular with the fans, but he was not popular with Gordie Howe. Uh, and Colleen Howe at the time, because the Howes had joined uh, the Whalers from Houston a couple of years earlier, they didn't like him. Okay. And they made it known to the uh, the ownership, and uh, he felt the heat. And in 1979, he got a television job at WFSB, the local CBS affiliate in Hartford, and as an assistant sports director. So he left, and I didn't know this. I was given that story later. So he did that last year. When I didn't take the job in 78, mm-hmm. they kept him on for another year, and then... He wanted to delve into television, 
And so that left an opening again. They called me back. So simply that's what happened. And Bill Barnes said, would you reconsider coming back? And I said, absolutely. Now, Mm -hmm. because you're in the National Hockey League, and it was always a dream of a kid from Detroit to be uh, an NHL broadcaster. So that's the long-winded way that that happened. I got lucky, and then 39 years later, uh, stayed with it. I want the Cliff Notes version of what the Hartford Whalers were from the time you joined them as an NHL team, entering the NHL team in 1979, to 1997 when they became the Carolina Hurricanes. I'm about to be 43. So for me, the Whalers were growing up the team that you didn't want to be in the EA Sports hockey game. They weren't good. <laughs> you didn't want to be the Whalers. Oh, you didn't even want that 87 team? No, no. It was like it was like NHL 92 to okay. NHL 93, right? Oh, absolutely. So you didn't want you didn't want to be the Whalers. They weren't good. And the association with the Whalers were a cool logo, but not a good team. But what what were the Whalers in a Cliff Notes version? Well, what they were was a team that came in with high expectations, actually made the playoffs that first year, unfortunately lost in three straight in what was then a best-of-five first-round series to mm-hmm. the Montreal Canadiens. And you got to remember that the Canadiens had won four straight Stanley Cups prior to that and uh, were on their way to the fifth, and then uh, the New York Islanders came on the scene. So the Whalers were a team that were successful early, but – what happened was they had mismanagement. Yeah. Uh, Jack Kelly was the general manager. He didn't have a lot of experience. They made some bad trades. Uh, and they had, a uh, unfortunately, uh, a lot of uh, front office consternation early. Mm-hmm. So for the first couple of years, they changed general managers twice. They changed coaches twice. So they were on that carousel. Uh, and They didn't get stability, Joe, until 1983 when Emil Francis became the general manager. And then the, he built a program of five, six straight years of of uh, playoffs, uh, and and they came close in 1986. Uh, they went to the Eastern Conference uh, final, and that was it. Uh, you know, they they would have won the Stanley Cup that year had they not lost uh, to the Montreal Canadiens in a, a tough seven game series. Mm-hmm. So the Cliff Notes version is mismanagement, a lot of uh, uh, change of uh, uh, of upper echelon management. No stability, I think, and and that was the reason they weren't a very good team for a number of those 18 years. So there's a change in ownership. Peter Carmanos buys the Hartford Whalers. Mm -hmm. And ownership is always going to tell you one thing, but then obviously we know how the execution plays out, and that's a deeper conversation for a variety of different reasons. When did you get the the inclination or know, oh, wait a minute, we're not going to be in Hartford. We're going somewhere. But we're not going to be in Hartford. When did, when did you start getting that? Well, that was uh, very interesting. That's when I met one of the classiest people uh, of all time, and it's uh, Jim Rutherford, people who can relate here to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was nothing short of a uh, a class act. And he was, of course, this was his maiden voyage as a general manager. Look what he's done since. He's won Stanley Cups in Pittsburgh. He's in the Hockey Hall of Fame. But then he was a rookie general manager in 1994. And uh, he wanted to make it work. He really did, mm-hmm. and uh, and unfortunately, uh, one of his first trades uh, cost the Hurricanes, or the Whalers at that time, three first-round draft picks with the Boston Bruins, and it was for Glenn Wesley. Uh, that was, and it was always unheard of, Joe, for the Whalers to make trades with the Boston Bruins. Sure. It never happened. Well, there was a lot of backstory to that, but he needed a kingpin defenseman. 
Uh, but he did trade also Chris Pronger, uh, who was a, uh, as we know now, a Hall of Fame Hall defenseman, of for Brendan Shanahan. Shanahan didn't want to be there. So Jim Rutherford was trying to make it work, and they made a four-year commitment. Peter Carmanis made a four-year commitment. And there was no questions asked that uh, he was transparent about it. Yeah, We're going to let this go for four years, and then after that I can't promise you anything. Well, at the end of the third year, things were still not going well. The team was not making the playoffs. They were making minimal headway. And attendance was dropping to about eight to nine to ten thousand average in a at that time only fifteen thousand seat arena. Mm-hmm. You got to remember we didn't have these mega arenas back in the mid nineties. Uh, they just started to be sprouting up maybe by ninety five or ninety six, like United Center and uh, Air Canada Center and all those places never got built to the and Wachovia Center originally from uh, Philadelphia. So anyway, it was a small building, but they still weren't drawing very well, so Carmanus was looking for a place to go. And there were three options, Raleigh, Columbus, and Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And Gary Bettman was working very closely with uh, Peter Carmanus about relocating, even though he didn't like to relocate teams yeah. necessarily. He still doesn't. But um, he had something in mind with, uh, obviously, Columbus and Minnesota. It was called expansion money. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. You know, so as you saw in nineteen or two thousand, Minnesota and Columbus came into the NHL. So it wasn't going to be there. Yeah. Owners wanted that money, man. Come on now. Absolutely. And and the only thing that uh, I think Carmelis would have regretted was he wanted to move to Vegas back then. That mm-hmm. was his first choice. But that was a no-no back in the day. Absolutely. You could, not, you could not do that. Yeah. And see how things have come full circle. Like here now they're taking money from all these uh, uh-huh. gambling entities and uh, uh, getting into bed with them. But back then, no. Gary Bettman said, no, we will have nothing to do with Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. He can't go there. So in came the people here in Raleigh with a uh, building that he, they were going to hand him the management rights to if you'll move here. And he decided to do it. So that's how, and that's so that four-year commitment became a three-year commitment, and uh, they left at the end of that third year, and uh, that uh, started uh, our journey here in North Carolina. But it wasn't a smooth transition. You didn't no. just go to the entertainment and sports arena, or right. as you, you like to call it, the Ressa, the Ressa. back in the day. Yeah. Uh, you had to spend some time in Greensboro uh-huh. at the Greensboro Coliseum, which has its own history. It is a wonderful facility. I think Greensboro Coliseum gets a bad rap, but it's actually a very well-run building. You go from traditional hockey markets, right, and Hartford attendance aside, you go to Greensboro, North Carolina, with the famous black curtain and nobody really showing up to these games. What are you thinking? Well, again, to get back to your the, the previous question, I know you asked me, when did I find out? I found out in March of 1997 that we were going to be moving, mm-hmm. that it was a possibility because they tried to get a building in Hartford. Okay? Yeah, negotiations fell through. And they but... fell through, and the governor didn't want it, and uh, there was a lot of acrimony there. So that's when I found out from Jim Rutherford himself, and he asked me, are you coming with us? And I said, of course I am. I have two years left on a contract that you gave me. I'm not going to walk away and <laughs> renege on it. I want to be part of building something there. Well, little did I know that, and this is like in March, it's May of 97 that we announced we move to Greensboro or to some entity, whether it was going to be here or Greensboro or Fayetteville was even an option at the time as they were building that Crown Coliseum at the time, but there was no assurances that that would be done in time. So Greensboro was a safer bet, except that they had to pay off the previous owner by buying his team 
the Greensboro team and moving it, relocating it, so he could buy the dates. Carmanos had to pay off the previous owner of Greensboro so they could play in Greensboro. And you're right, it was very surrealistic. Uh, I'll never forget being uh, quasi-in charge of putting our radio network together, along with Rick Francis, who was our salesperson at the time and our marketing guy. And I'm thinking, how are we going to do this? And uh, we got some references to people who could build a radio room because we did our own radio uh, in-house mm-hmm. uh, with the Whalers, and we wanted to do the same thing in Carolina, and we did. And so I, you, you, it's crazy. We had two or three months to do it, mm-hmm. and we got it done. But, again, as you said, it, attendance was abysmal, except for that opening night when they played uh, Ronnie Francis, Mario Lemieux, and the Pittsburgh Penguins at 23,000 in there. I think they only had one sellout after that, and that was on the day after Thanksgiving when Gretzky came in with the Rangers mm-hmm. uh, that season. So, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a bit of a surrealistic nightmare. Uh, and, uh, and to culminate uh, that, that thought was seeing Pierre Maguire, uh, who, of course, from NBC Sports, now works for the Ottawa Senators. He's a good friend of mine. He was the color man for Montreal Radio, mm-hmm. and it was so surrealistic to see him in a freezing building because there was nobody at the game. The first time the Montreal Canadiens came in, he's doing color for the Canadiens radio broadcast. Yeah. I look across the way at him, and I'm saying, what is wrong with this picture? Yeah. Here are the storied Montreal Canadiens in Greensboro, North Carolina. <laughs> and I think that's when it finally hit me. But you had, so you had two years remaining on your contract. Um did you did you consider like this i'm in north carolina nobody cares about hockey here i don't know where this is oh, going yeah did you did you think uh, you know what i got play-by-play experience doing other things too or maybe there's another job did, did you think about leaving uh yes i did okay to be very honest with you and of course mr rutherford knows that if he's going to listen to this podcast oh, I because doubt it. he's the guy he only listens to adam gold podcast oh okay yeah. well uh, i will say this he was the first person i talked to because here's what happened in uh in the spring of 2000 we had played the two years in Greensboro and the first year in Raleigh mm-hmm. uh, when the Ressa opened, <laughs> remember, in late October of 99. So after that 99-2000 season, I got a phone call from the Boston Bruins, and they were looking for a play-by-play guy. And the same Bob Newmeyer, the late Bob Newmeyer that I told you about earlier, mm-hmm. who was the Whalers announcer in the WHA, was going to leave the Bruins and pursue other interests. So, again, in essence, uh, I almost followed him again. Bob's just opening up doors for you. It was amazing. So uh, the procedure was Harry Sinden, who was the general manager of the Bruins, called Jim Rutherford out of the blue and said, we want to interview Chuck. And Jim Rutherford, uh, as the true gentleman that he is, allowed me to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I never spoke out about being upset with moving to North Carolina or I was, you know, I was not looking to leave, but that opportunity did come as did one other opportunity with the Minnesota Wild, who Mm -hmm. were going to be an expansion team that year in the 2000-2001 season. So I had two options to leave. And the more serious one was moving back to New England with the Bruins. Well, uh, met with them, and it was kind of an apples and oranges uh, assessment because, you know, with the Hurricanes and the Whalers, I worked for the team, Mm -hmm. and there was a certain sense of stability with that, including a 401K plan and Mm -hmm. uh, insurance and all that. And with the Boston Bruins, it would have been working for WBZ Radio. It would have been joining a union, uh, a talent union, AFTRA, and then getting my insurance that way. And then, of course, the cost of living. Yeah. So I weighed it all out after speaking with the Bruins, and I did get offered the job and turned it down. Mm-hmm. So I thought, boy, this is going to be tough now for me. 
uh, coming back and having to tell Jim Rutherford that I'm staying because yeah. he thought I was going to leave. Yeah. He thought original Six City, yeah, how do you back not? in New England, how are you not going to move? Yeah, the golf is better here, too. But right? the golf was better yeah. here. I don't have orange or yellow golf balls <laughs> <laughs> to play in <laughs> December. The snow. So, so, <laughs> Joe, I mean, so it was, not, it was a no-brainer. But I was a little apprehensive. But, again, showing the class that he had, Jim Rutherford said, hey, you're welcome back. We didn't want you to leave. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, was a, it was a breath of fresh air. And that's why I had that sense of loyalty because he uh, never had another uh, look at another job and never yeah. wanted to get another job at all under the Carmanos Rutherford regime. So you, you're you here now in North Carolina. Things are settled at the Raleigh Entertainment and Sports Arena, and we've moved beyond what I always thought were silly, terrible plays to try to bring hockey in, like Richard Petty you know, associated with the Hurricanes and trying to, like, southern it up and whatnot. You you, you should sell yourself on the product, not trying to make it um, relatable in a way that might not connect. However, you still need to teach people the game. So when you came over, did you change how you did the broadcast, knowing that the audience that's listening to the team or listening to the broadcast right now might not have the same level of knowledge as an original six team fan base or what you had in Hartford? Well, Joe, I think that's a great question, and I think that the way I approached it was the way my baseball broadcasting idol, Ernie Harwell of the Detroit Tigers, uh, would, and I read his book, and uh, even he did that year after year, Mm -hmm. and not assuming that all baseball fans know everything about baseball, the ins and outs of the lingo and of the strategies, and he said, be able to broadcast uh, right in the middle don't talk down to people who don't know the game, but don't really have to talk up to people who do the game, who know the game, and mm-hmm. uh, and and be right in that middle ground of education. And the way I took it was very simple. There's a lot of things about hockey that new fans may not realize. Everybody, and this is always kills me. They always think icing. What's icing? You know, <laughs> what's offside? I don't understand these rules of hockey. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what? I don't understand. I don't understand somebody face masking somebody and scoring a touchdown in the Super Bowl <laughs> and not getting called. But icing's simple. It's yes, elementary. It's and, very and so black I and thought, white. So um, I would take the approach my first season of broadcasting here in North Carolina, where when there would be an icing. Not every time it happened, but periodically I would mm-hmm. say, well, again, once it's, the puck is shot from your half of the center red line over the goal line untouched and the other team goes back to touch it, that's icing. I would say that once every five or six times there okay. was an icing. Uh, offside, I would explain the different uh, offside plays. Now, back then, the red line counted as a two-line pass, which it doesn't anymore. Mm-hmm. So I would explain the two-line offside pass as opposed to going into the, on a rush. So, again, you would do that periodically. And th- those are just two examples of what I did when we first moved here for listeners. Okay. Uh, because a lot of the games were on radio back then. There were only like 25 games on television. Uh, poor John Forslund. He yeah. worked with me for that reason. I call him poor John Forslund. But he didn't have a TV, and he was very frustrated, I know, at the beginning of that uh, uh, that time period because we didn't have a lot of games on television. So it was very important to do this job on radio, which I still think is the baseline medium of sports. I would agree with you on that. But at the same time, I'm. This is. I've never. I've never said this to you. Uh, a quick, quick context. When I when I graduated from NC State in two thousand one, I was a part timer at eight fifty. The Buzz. Oh yes, I remember those days. Which is where the games used to be broadcast. So I would be 
uh, behind a behind a, a studio board, and I would have to make sure that we would hit the local breaks. And, you know, they always had a different out cue. You would say, you know, the yeah, I'll be back with more after this from your local station. Boom. This and, is and then I would, <laughs> yeah, I, I would wait for so for the audience. Like I'm right. I'm this 22 year old just out of college. You know, making I don't know like 8.75 an hour, uh, eating cold pizza. And I would sit there at this board waiting for Chuck to do the out cue. Right. And then I would hit a button. But when you're when you're sitting there, your play-by-play, and I mean this in a complimentary way, you have to get used to it. And maybe it's because I was so used to television play-by-play. You're packing so much information into how you're presenting the game yeah. and painting the picture mm-hmm. that... You really have to, but I learned a lot. I basically learned hockey from listening, you know, behind the, in the studio, listening to your broadcast. But did you ever, did you ever hear from people saying, Chuck, could you slow down? Well, I, that's a good question because I think that uh, if you looked at percentages, maybe three or 4% of people would say, you know, slow down, you're giving a lot of information. But the predominant number of people, the feedback I always got over the years was they loved that about listening on the radio. That's what I thought. Because you're trying to, uh, in a discernible way, you have to uh, not be mumbo-jumbo about it, but you try to give as much information as you can. And what drives me crazy uh, today is that I wonder if there's an appreciation for that by young broadcasters who start out doing radio, but they're not really doing a radio broadcast, in mm-hmm. my opinion. They're doing a, a telecast by not providing some of those details that people want to know. And it's something as simple as just naming names mm-hmm. versus saying that uh, uh, Rod Brindamore is coming in off the left side and takes his backhand. Somebody would say, Rod Brindamore fires wide. There's a big difference yeah. between you know providing those little details and being more general mm-hmm. about it. And I always took pride and and it got recognized, and I was happy about this by numerous national people who said, "We think you're the best radio broadcaster in the National Hockey League, and here's why: mm-hmm. because we can really see the game." So to answer your question, I think I tried to bring people up to my level of okay. broadcasting the game, and hopefully it was uh, you know not a bunch of gobbledygook. And, well, that's how uh, I took know. it. You would do Caton's Corner as well, where you would answer. It's the old. It's basically the equivalent of a mailbag segment. Correct. Uh, what you see on a website these days. Yeah, and and it's just it was limited and unlimited, really, because it was never limited to just statistical questions or it was anything about the game that you uh, wanted to know about, uh, whether it's about history, uh, rules interpretations, uh, and that type of thing. So, and I got some fascinating questions, wonderful questions from people, because again, my philosophy, Joe, was to always bring people up to your level of knowledge of the game, bring them up with it, be like a professor, uh, a, a, a teacher uh, uh, of higher education, and and uh, bring those people up because they want that. I, mm. I think they, if they care enough to listen. Uh, to a National Hockey League game, you owe that to them. You owe them the history as well. That's another thing I think that's missing with the young broadcasters today. They don't know how to relate things that happen on the ice today to historical references, and I used to always love to do that as well. Which is why I'm doing this podcast, and I think specific to the Carolina Hurricanes, I I liken the the current era that we're in with Rod Burnamore as the head coach and everybody being excited about them making it back to the playoffs that first year and where they are as of this recording as new money. Okay. Right. It's like people, people might not have paid attention to him during that 10 year drought without the playoffs. 
they have an affinity for this particular team and some of the personalities on this team. And obviously, they know Rod Brennamore to be this established made man. But they don't know all the context to it. And that's where I wanted to go in terms of impactful things for the organization. We can easily talk about 2002 in the Stanley Cup playoffs. We can talk about winning it in 2006. But that trade that, that brought Rod Brennamore in, I think, encapsulates the Hurricanes and this market and the light bulb going on and getting it. Because Rod didn't... Rod's probably thinking the same thing you were thinking back in 1997. We're going to Raleigh, North Carolina? What the heck is this about? Well, Rod, 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 Rod's in the same situation right now. Of course, now Rod is a legend of North Carolina, not just the Hurricanes, but just of North Carolina sports. Absolutely he is. And here's a little history lesson for our listeners and your podcast, listener, uh, podcast listeners. I think I referred to uh, Chris Pronger for Brendan Shanahan, mm-hmm. that trade in Hartford. That's the root of Rod Brindamore coming to the Carolina Hurricanes because Brendan Shanahan was acquired by Jim Rutherford, and then Brendan Shanahan was converted to the Detroit Red Wings for Keith Primo. And, of course, Keith Primo went to Philadelphia for the same said Rod Brindamore. So there's the link of the trades mm-hmm. that led Mr. Brindamore on a snowy evening that you may remember, uh, January 24th, 2000, mm-hmm. and he got traded on the day of that 23-inch snowstorm. And he's sitting in his room, and you're right, he's probably wondering, he's looking around. He was a lifelong, even though he was drafted by the St. Louis Blues, lifelong Philadelphia Flyer with that logo tattooed on his backside. And all of a sudden, now he's in Raleigh, North Carolina, and it's snowing 23 uh, inches. He's got to be wondering, what in the heck's going on? That was the root of Rod Brindamore coming to this organization, and the rest is history. And and again, if people don't know that, that are rooting for him, they may know him as the captain of that 06 uh, uh, Stanley Cup championship Mm -hmm. team, but they don't know really that he was there six years earlier, too, and you know, lived through 02, like you said, mm-hmm. uh, with Detroit. Another heartbreak because he had a heartbreak in 97 with right. Philadelphia right. against the Red Wings in the uh, in the Stanley Cup Finals. So, uh, you know, again, he was the guy. But that's the uh, those are the kind of stories you love to tell people if they're not aware, if they're on, if they're that new money team, like you say, the the new money fans that are jumping on the bandwagon. Pivotal Game 3 here at the Raucous ESA. The Hurricanes leading 2-1 late in the third. Nicholas Lindstrom fires. Brad Hall redirects and scores. 1-14 left in the game. Tied at 2-2 going into not one. Not two into a third overtime. With both teams exhausted. 41-year-old Igor Larionov skating in on Artur Zerbe. He scores. 5-13 left in the third overtime. Detroit wins at 3-2. They lead the series two games to one, coming into the Knights game four. So let's go to 2002. There's a triple overtime game against the Detroit Red Wings at PNC. Well, I'm sorry, at that time it was the, well, it was still the Entertainment Sports Arena, I think. Yeah, it probably was. Yeah, it was before it was RBC Center, yeah. So there's, there's there's a triple overtime game. I was there. Obviously, you're broadcasting. What are you thinking? as this game is going on and it's becoming history. Well, I'm thinking, A, I've got to go to the bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) And I had nobody to. (laughs) That's my first thought uh, because I'm glad we had paper cups in the broadcast booth. 
Uh, that was the first thing because on the intermissions, I had to fill the whole intermission because back then uh, in that particular series, uh, you know, you didn't have a lot of help. I mean, it was a one-man broadcast crew. Yeah, it's just uh, you. So that's the first thing. The second thing is are they really going to uh, have to play three overtimes when they should have won the game? Mm-hmm. Because if you recall, the final faceoff uh, with the sixth attacker, uh, it was uh, a, a faceoff that uh, was won by Steve Eiserman back to Lidstrom at the point, and he let a shot go that was tipped out of midair by Brad Hall to send it into overtime. And otherwise, the Hurricanes would have taken a two-games-to-one lead. That was game three yeah. of the series. The Hurricanes had won game one in Detroit, lost game two, and nearly made it a two-games-to-one advantage for themselves. And, and I was going to circle, back. I was gonna circle yeah. back to game one in a call that's, that's always kind of stuck with me, but – Specific to specific to that overtime, you know, as a as a broadcaster, do you think are you, at that point are you hoping for some conclusion? No, I'm just hoping for a good goal to be scored okay. by either team, and it's of course preferably for the Hurricanes. Okay. Uh, and I didn't want it to be kind. Of, I wanted it to be an exciting play. I wanted it to be up to the task of calling it correctly mm-hmm. and calling it excitingly. Uh, and that was what I was hoping for. Which gets me to game one, okay. where Ron Francis scores the overtime winner in game one. I think, what, a minute into the into the overtime. Right. Jeff O'Neill makes that nice pass from behind the net. And I'm 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 at the board back at 850, the buzz, when it's going on. You know the call. I'm paraphrasing here. But you basically are like, it's stunned. You can hear it's stunned silence in the building. And uh, you say... Something's like overtime in living color, I yeah. believe, is what you said. Yeah, and it is red and black, I think I said yes. something like, as opposed to the red and white of the yes. Red Wings. So. Yeah, the red and black and living color. You know, Ron Francis does this. And then you fast forward to the game three there at at, uh, at the Entertainment Sports Arena. Had the Canes won that game, do you think the Canes would have pulled it off? Wow, that's a good question because I'd like to think so, but I know with 12 Hall of Fame players on the other side. Because the Kings didn't win a game after that. Yeah, I, I I can't definitively say. Well, it would have given them a lot of momentum, but I think it would have depended on what happened in game four, which would have been the second game in Raleigh. Okay. Uh, and as we know, uh, they, as you said, they didn't win another game. They mm-hmm. lost that series in five, so... No, I, I got to be honest, I don't think they would have won. Okay, uh, just, just I, too much talent on the other end. Yeah, I think because even though that would have been a heartbreaking loss for the Red Wings, mm-hmm. uh, whether it was triple overtime, two overtimes, one overtime, whatever. Because my, my theory has always been that's inc- two, for two reasons. One, there's a when you feel that you're a team of destiny, the pluck, and this happens in the NHL all the time, teams that don't belong in these situations, which actually gets us to 2006 in the Edmonton Oilers as right. an eighth seed. Like, exactly. what are they What are they doing here, right? That's right. Canes are in the same position as the Oilers were in 2006. Well, what are you doing here? Going up against this team with all of these Hall of Famers? I always felt that losing in that fashion if you're Detroit is a twofold thing. One, like, damn, this team might actually do it. And, of course, the confidence going to the Carolina Hurricanes and a guy like Ron Francis who can sit there as a captain in the moment tell you, guys, this is it. That's why I was always convinced that had they won that game, they probably would have won that series. Okay. And, you know, and I can't argue with you and disagree with you. It's just kind of a, a gut feeling of mine knowing sure. the opposition. It's a great and, what if. Uh, it's a great what if. It, it really is. And knowing also that the all-time winningest coach of all time, uh, again, regular season or playoff, was on the other bench, Scotty Bowman. And so 
I don't know, but I do think that talent overwhelms. But you're right, there are teams of destiny, let's face it, uh, in any sport. Uh, so, uh, I, and you're right, uh, it, it could have happened. I'm not sure it would have, but I do think that it would have been very exciting because had the Hurricanes taken a two games to one lead, that's why I'm saying game four would have been yeah. the pivotal game to yeah. me. Now, they win that game, they win the series, or do they? Because we saw three games to one lead in 06. We've seen that. Didn't we? We saw that. We <laughs> and saw that, that nearly got blown. So. And before we get to 2006, I also wanted to use 2002 as a, a quick uh, aside about the dynamic between the Carolina Hurricanes under Peter Carmanos and the Detroit Red Wings and their owner. They didn't get along. There was, there was animosity between the ownerships. Not necessarily, it might not have come through on the fan side of things, but through ownership, they did not get along. And there's a Sergei Fedorov story that actually, again, this is where new money situations, new money fans might not realize what happened with Sebastian Ajo. Carolina Hurricanes were the, were the originals when it came to ticking somebody off through an offer sheet. Absolutely. Which is what happened with Detroit and Sergei Fedorov and kind of a little bit of a screw you that came through it. So kind of a, a Cliff Notes version of what the Hurricanes did with Fedorov. He could have been a Hurricane, maybe, with the offer sheet, but it just put Detroit in a position where they had to overpay him, right? Absolutely. And that was, and a lot of people thought that was the reason that uh, Peter Carmanis wanted to do it, that he was vengeful against uh, the late Mike Illich mm -hmm. now, and, uh, and because they were rivals, they both had competing uh, youth hockey organizations in Detroit, and I think the root of the issue was uh, obviously, Mr. Carmanos owned a software uh, company for business applications, and I heard uh, that uh, the root of the uh, the uh, rift came when Little Caesars Pizza, owned by Mike Illich, uh, had committed to use Copyware for their business uh, uh, software, mm -hmm. and that he reneged on it. That's the story I got, and okay. that's why Pete was upset. It okay. was a business deal first that became a hockey rivalry, uh -huh. and so uh, you know, there's always a route to these things, and. Uh, but again, uh, you know, uh, I the Fedorov thing. Now, can you imagine the figures? It was forty nine million over five years. That's mm -hmm. nothing. Oh, today, that's nothing you know? today. I mean, well, we're talking like late nineties. So, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, and I, you know, everybody knew all along or thought all along that Illich was going to match the offer. He wasn't going to let Fedorov come over. But I think that that was one of those things that was done uh, so that. Uh, uh, it might hurt Mr. Illich in the pocket. A but, little bit. You know, a little similar bit. to what happened to the situation with Sebastian. So with Sebastian Ajo, and then, of course, uh, the Carolina Hurricanes did get a little payback with uh, with Kokanyemi, too. But that's another topic for another day. So the Hurricanes make it to the Stanley Cup Finals in 2002, um, but then they go back into that trough uh, for a little bit. And obviously we get into the lockout and then 2006. What did you do during the lockout, by the way? In that 0405 season, uh, we basically got paid a portion of our salaries. So uh, we ended up doing our kitchen over oh, nice. in January of 05. Uh, so we took uh, a little bit of uh, the Stanley Cup money, uh, the uh, the extra money we made from 02, mm -hmm. saved it, and uh, had a kitchen. But no, I became. Uh, and this is a defunct uh, golf course now, a Crooked Creek Country Club in Fuquay, Verena. I became a one-day-a-week 
ranger. So I could play a lot of golf. So I did that just for something to do. I, I'm one of those people that needs something to do all the time. Sure. So in 0405, that was a long year. So planning the kitchen was my wife's job. Paying for it was mine. Mm-hmm. Luckily, we got a portion of our salary. The uh, Hurricanes were nice enough to do that. We, you know, because some broadcasters didn't make a dime during that uh, complete lockout season. Ah, gotcha. And we were always being teased, Joe, that, oh, they're, they're going to settle this soon. It's not going to go the whole year. Yeah. And then it ended up going the whole year. So. so hockey comes back, but there was a different, with rules changes and some other things, there was confidence in that particular group that it was supposed to be a good year. They'd been building towards that. This is something that Jim Rutherford, the general manager at the time, uh, was adamant about. So did you also get that sense going into the season that this was going to be a special year? No, not really. Uh, I mean, no. I mean, because with the rule changes Mm -hmm. and with the aggressiveness of Peter LaViolette, I knew his coaching style. Sure. I thought there could be, and then when I saw the pieces being put together uh, that came over because of sal- – remember now, this is the first year of the salary cap. Mm-hmm. So it's teams had to uh, Some tough uh, decisions get rid of were made. Right. And Ray Whitney, who was a Detroit Red Wing, came mm-hmm. over. He was one of the key uh, pieces uh, to coming over. I mean, this the team had great chemistry. And I, I credit Peter Laviolette for a lot of that success early because he would do a lot of uh, team-building things at training camp mm-hmm. that brought this team together. And when you talk about the class individuals, you look back at it, Joe, and see who was on that team and the experiences they brought. Mm-hmm. And not only winning the Stanley Cup, but being in the finals from a Glenn Wesley to a Brett Hedekin who uh, had the frustration of losing to the Rangers as a Vancouver Canuck in 94. Brenda Moore at okay. to be the captain. R- R- right. Brenda Moore with his uh, going to the finals with Philadelphia mm-hmm. and the and the 2 experiences. Uh, so... 06 was special from that standpoint. They had a very special team. Glenn Wesley, who had gone to the finals a couple of times with the Boston Bruins and never won. So, But they had a lot of guys that had a lot of experience in long runs of the playoffs, not to mention a Justin Williams. I mean, you look down the list of the players yeah. that uh, were on that team, and how about the rookie, Cam Ward, mm-hmm. in goal? Martin Gerber did his part uh, in goal. So this team was very, very special. And I think that uh, this is where I think it differs a little bit from today's Hurricanes. A lot of changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, good team, but uh, they'll have to prove it in the playoffs uh, now. But back in 06, that team was as solid as anything. And they ended up, I think, second to the Ottawa Senators in the conference. Mm-hmm. And I think that, uh, you know, a lot was expected of them. Well, so much so that they actually, when they won the Eastern Conference, there's a, there's a famous difference in how the team accepted the eastern conference in 2002 there's a picture of ron francis holding the trophy the eastern conference trophy in 06 nobody's touching it yeah i know that was a thing that happened you know and then Sidney crosby changed that again you know? yeah well the, at the time it was the only thing you're touching is the stanley cup right. this is not we're, we're not settling for this and there's a lot of superstition that goes along with that right and i remember in 2002 the attitude was ron francis look man He's been through this before. He was at that point. He's already a Stanley Cup champion, so it's whatever. And I think he kind of understood the moment of what it was for the franchise. Like, hey, this is a big freaking deal for this franchise. Absolutely, Whalers slash Hurricanes. This is a big freaking deal. So you know what? We're going to own that. I'm going to hold this trophy. But it ties back to what you just said about the group of guys in '06. They've already kind of been through this. The one thing they want is that Stanley Cup. Yeah. So it it kind of showed itself in the sequence in 2006 when they won the Eastern Conference. of like, no, we're not doing this. I always thought that was interesting. And they get to the finals. They're taking on 
Edmonton. And I will admit, I don't know if you felt this way, but I thought it was going to be easy. I mean, things had gone bad. There's the Ty Conklin, you know, screw up, everything else. I'm like, Psh, this is going to be a piece of cake. Yeah, I know. Well, it started with their goaltender being run over by Andrew Ladd, being mm-hmm. pushed by Marc-Andre Bergeron at the beginning, their starting guy, and then uh, Conklin having to come in. But, yeah, you you know, but, again, it's a, a testimony to uh, something that still holds true today, and that is if you get in the playoffs, you have a chance to win the Stanley Cup. Mm-hmm. I don't care who you are. Take a look at uh, this year in the Eastern Conference. Uh, Hurricanes, let's say they finish first overall and have to play the second wildcard team. Well, that second wildcard team right now is the Washington Capitals. You don't want that. <laughs> yeah, you don't want that. No, I'm with you on this. Yeah. So I, I was in Edmonton for game six. Uh, the way the schedule had broken out for you know somebody having to be there, um, I was not hosting a show at that time. So it was like, all right, you go, you get audio, you talk to the players after the game, et cetera. They lose that game. And I have never seen a locker room that, and I've seen teams lose national championships or whatever, but I, going into the Canes locker room after that game at Edmonton, you could tell there was a legit like, oh, crap. Oh, yeah. Oh, crap. Yeah. Did you feel after losing game six that, kind of ties back to 2002 with momentum and this team could really do it. We shouldn't be here. Did you ever get the sense that maybe, you know what, they might not win this thing? Yeah, actually I did. And and the vision I had was going back to the hotel uh, because we did not fly out after the game because mm-hmm. it was such a long flight and uh, it was decided that it's easier to fly the next morning mm-hmm. to fly back to Raleigh after that game. And both teams did that. The Edmonton Oilers did the same thing. And when we got to the airport at like 9 o'clock in the morning the next day, and first of all, you're looking at uh, middle of June, right? So yeah. when you're in Edmonton, Alberta, in the middle of June, it's 11 o'clock at night and it's still dusk. Yes. Okay, <laughs> you're in the middle of the my, summer solstice. My body clock was so messed up in Edmonton. Yeah. It was I mean, so messed up from the flight it. itself, and then, yes, it's still dusk. It's wild. Well, here's the problem uh, that I had. We go back to the hotel. I go back to my room. I'm very disconsolate, and uh, I'm hearing nothing but uh, uh, vehicle horns. Everybody in the street on Jasper Avenue and 101st Street in Edmonton is blowing their horn as if they won the Stanley Cup mm-hmm. because bah, eh, 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 they're yeah. all going crazy as if they won, and all it was was, a, like you said, tied the series. Yeah. So, yeah, I think they had the momentum in, in, in that situation, especially from Game 5. If you took it back to Game 5 where the Hurricanes had that one in the bag mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden poor Corey Stillman makes a bad pass up the middle on the power play and Fernando Pizzotti picks it off, goes in and scores an overtime game-winning goal shorthanded mm-hmm. in, in the fifth game. Yeah. Right? So it should have been over. It was three games to one for Carolina. So we know the rest of it. The Carolina Hurricanes win the Stanley Cup. This is this is the moment for you because you know the Canes winning the Cup and how you call it at the end. It's permanent record, so you got to nail this. Yeah, you're right. And how I, did you like? So when did it start to hit you? Like, oh crap! Like 
They're going to win this thing. Well, I did a little preparation. Okay. I mean, normally it's an extemporaneous uh, thing that you have to let the feeling move you, so to speak. Let the music move you. Of course. At of the course, time. However, I also thought that I wanted to pay a little tribute to the fans in Hartford who were long suffering for 18 years of this franchise's history. So I went back like a nerd and counted the number of days that the Whalers and uh, and Hurricanes were in existence in the National Hockey League. And I wanted to use that number, and it was 9,439 or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I said to myself, if they win the Cup, I'm going to make a reference to that uh, of the number of days of NHL existence for the Hartford Whalers, Carolina Hurricanes franchise. They've won the Stanley Cup. When Justin Williams scored that empty net goal – uh, that's when I did that, and I, uh, I'm i happy I did because that was the only preparation I did in the call mm-hmm. is having that correct number, and I even doubled and triple-checked it. 9,393 days of frustration. There it is. And on the 9,394th day of existence. There you go. That was the exact number. There you go. Well, thank you. I appreciate that because I'll tell you, it, it was exhilarating, and it was uh, – and I wanted to pay some kind of tribute to Whaler fans who were long-suffering. Mm-hmm. I mean, this team could have won the Stanley Cup in 1986, too. Yeah, you the, mentioned that. The, the, mentioned the, that. the Whaler team, which had the Ray Ferraros, the Ronnie Francis's, the Ulf Samuelsons, and did Dave that, Tippett's. Did and, that bother you coming over from Hartford? Because I think I'm trying – this is off the top of my head. You know, we have John Forslund, uh, who was doing TV and will also be with you on the radio when they weren't on TV. Uh, we got Skip Cunningham. Who else came over from the Whalers organization? Uh, Pete Friesen was the trainer for a couple of years. Wally Tatum, equipment people, well, Bobby equipment Gorman. People, yeah. uh, well, the only players, really, Glenn Wesley, uh, Stewie Grimson was in Hartford But I'm talking about the people behind the scenes. Oh, behind the scenes, that, yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, yeah. Like you and There weren't Skip. that many of us, really. And that was heartbreaking for those who had to stay back and lost their jobs, yeah. uh, really. But Because uh, we had community relations directors. and. But I remember like, in the early days – of the hurricanes at at the entertainment and sports arena there there was no reference to the whalers and this was by design i mean even something as iconic as brass bonanza was not a thing you were going to hear yeah at at the at the arena but if you looked closely you could find some old whalers logos on equipment uh, I think at one point I had seen I forgot what kind of storage unit it was, but well, like seen, hockey bags and that like type hockey of thing. bags yeah. and that kind of stuff. You'd see stickers and whatnot. So when the so when Tom Dundon, seeing the money that's associated with the Whalers, decided, well, this is silly. Like I'm, I'm, I I want to capitalize on this and have Whalers nights. What did you think? Did you did you agree with moving away from the Whalers at that time? Did you did you wish that they actually would have done more to acknowledge, as you mentioned, the long suffering fans in Hartford in those earlier days? I think that there were so many open wounds for Peter Carmanos and the way he was so unpopular moving the team. And as I said earlier in this podcast, it wasn't Jim Rutherford; it was Peter Carmanos who basically was the. Uh, uh, the devil to the fans in sure. Hartford. Uh, Jimmy uh, escaped that because I don't think Jimmy was totally on board with moving. Mm-hmm. If they could have worked something out, but it was out of his control, a lot of uh, a lot of people's control, and it just became one of those things where the governor, uh, Governor Rowland of Connecticut, and Peter Carmanos just got into a headbutting contest, and uh, that was it, and it ended acrimoniously. And but I I think that it would have been nicer. 
had uh, they done this earlier? Because I think the thing that bothers me a little bit, and this has uh, really nothing to do with Tom Dundon, although he is the guy that started this Whalers thing Mm -hmm. uh, of bringing back, uh, I, I questioned his motives at the beginning. I thought it was going to be a, a big money-making thing. I don't know who talked him into doing this. I now have come to resolve that it's it's good. It's, yeah. I'm glad, but it's too late, and it's not his fault. No, it's not uh, his fault. But, it's, but I think it could have been done earlier, mm-hmm. but I think that since Peter Carmanos uh, was so uh, adamant that uh, people hated him and you know he didn't like the situation there, I think he would have been amenable to it if somebody would have talked him into doing it earlier. I would have liked to see it earlier. Because that's For history. example, within that's the history. maybe the first year moving back to Raleigh, mm-hmm. uh, let's say, that, that third season, the 99-2000 mm-hmm. season, would have been appropriate. But I think the wounds were so open, I don't think Whaler fans would have, and they still don't accept it. Well, I was going to say, I don't, know if they those, don't. I don't know if those wounds were ever healed because the yeah. first time they actually did the Whalers night, it reopened all of those conversations. Oh, about- I, I'm telling you, Joe, I hear from people in Hartford because I'm one of the last links. Yeah. You know, I'm not bragging, but they're, I mean, we do a Whalers weekend in Hartford with the Hartford Yard Goats, the AA team for yes. Colorado Rockies yes. baseball. And every year that thing gets tremendous support, mm-hmm. and every, they give me an earful as much as they, I guess, allegedly like me mm-hmm. coming back. They say, I don't know what the heck this guy's doing with this Whalers night. But you know what? That's their, They've got very deep-seated problems with it. But I you know? think it's a good thing because you don't want that in the dustbin of history. I mean, no, that, that, I, and I agree with that. I, I totally agree with you on that. So I, I, think it, I think it, I, I've always loved it. Yeah. I I love hearing Brass Bonanza. I think it's important to uh, understand that this team that's in this area had a history before that, and there is a way to incorporate them. So I was always curious on that first Whalers night, seeing these these Hurricanes players in Whalers uniforms take the ice mm-hmm. in this building. I got to imagine that you were kind of like, huh. <laughs> Isn't that something? Well, I guess the only thing I'll say, and I hate to personalize this, but there That's are what people. We're doing here. But but the the people, I'll be very honest with you. Uh, you can't have a Whalers night without Ron Francis, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't have a, a a Whalers night without Skip Cunningham, who mm-hmm. was there from day one and was actually there as working for the team when they did have the first Whalers night. So that helps me a little bit more, uh, you know, kind of resolve this. Yeah. And I guess that's the only thing I'm against. Uh, I'm not against it, but I'm just saying that the only thing that makes me feel like it's not legitimately a Whalers night because those people got, uh, and especially Skip Cunningham later, is not with the organization anymore. To me, it's about people, and it's about the sensitivity of like realizing who the important people were in the franchise's history mm-hmm. uh, with no disrespect to Mike Rogers, who was the first former whaler to be part of whalers night as i recall three or four years ago great guy sure uh leading scorer of the team their first couple of seasons when there used to be 100 point seasons by players uh terrific individual but he you know got invited to do this and it was great for him Mm -hmm. but to me the franchise is always going to be ronnie uh, you know, the kingpin player of all time yes. for Whalers history. And so without uh, the number one guy, Skip Cunningham, was there from day one in 1972 with the New England Whalers when they were conceived in the World Hockey Association, that's where I think that, you know, you could do a little bit better. But I, I the concept is fine. And, yeah. and, and I your point is very well taken. Keep the, the memory alive of that team even though there's going to be a lot of people in New England that don't like it. And there are some Hurricanes fans that didn't like seeing it, too, because at that by that point, to your point about it being too late, 
the Hurricanes had their own history. The Hurricanes were the ones that won the Stanley Cup. Well, the let's put it this way. These things. Yeah, let's put it this way. This is 25th season mm-hmm. in North Carolina versus 18 years in in uh, Hartford. Yep. So, or in New England. You know, well, in Hartford for the NHL portion. So now there's a, a, the pendulum has swung to Carolina's way, and I. But I do think I agree with you. That sense of history. Well, even the Colorado Avalanche do it. You know, they've yeah. got that purple uh, Northeast jersey. I love it. Uh, I know. I think it's and, great. And I think you're absolutely right. And let's not also forget the fact uh, that the uh, Whaler jersey is like the fifth or sixth best-selling vintage jersey or total jersey in the NHL. I remember. Just ask those marketing people. They're the NHL licensing. I think, I, I think it was 2014. Uh, Adam Gold and I went to New York for the Super Bowl. That was the Russell Wilson Super Bowl. Yeah. Uh, so. I spent some time. Uh, we we actually went to the outdoor stadium series that was at Yankee Stadium, New Yankee Stadium. It was between I think it was between the Devils and the Rangers that day. Regardless, um, I went to the NHL store and there I could not find Hurricane stuff. But you know what I could find? Whalers stuff. Yeah. Uh, the NHL knew they knew that they could make money off the Whalers gear, and I guess that's what we'll we'll tie it with because you were a part of that organization, and you know skip before that. What was it about the whale that has people nostalgic for it? Because you mentioned the Nordiques and and there's and there's other NHL teams that came and went, but what is it about the Whalers that seems to have stuck with people? Well, I I, I think in one uh, easy way, and I was there when I saw this. I don't think there was a team in hockey or any other sport that got tied into their community the way the Whalers were when they were in Hartford. And the way I'll say this is, and you can ask all the old players that played Mm -hmm. from the 70s to the 80s to the 90s, they did public appearances. They did school appearances. Uh, the DARE program, remember the uh, the, the anti-drug program yes. in schools? Yes. I can't tell you the number of times I took Kevin Deneen or Ronnie Francis or Mike Leute or Dave Tippett, Ray Ferraro, all of these guys, Ophie Samuelson, Gordy Howe, mm-hmm. all came uh, to those assemblies. So I think they were so tightly knit in the community. And this, was, this goes back even to the WHA days before my time uh, in Hartford. I think that's the reason, and nobody forgets it. And and the thing about New Englanders that you find out real quick, and I'm a Midwesterner, so I had to become a, a New Englander there for that 18 years and uh, enjoyed every minute of it, is they're loyal people. Mm-hmm. And they are people who don't forget uh, when somebody does something nice for them. Mm-hmm. And they the players were a fabric in the community. And I think that's the and, – and, and it's not getting lost either because the next generation, again, with that Whalers weekend that we have in July every year, I'm seeing people in their 40s and 50s who were fans when we were there mm-hmm. bringing their kids okay. and teaching them the lineage of what the Whalers were, even though those kids, you, you know, never saw a game. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, think about that. You, you know, you're talking 43 years old yourself. Yes. That's the year the league that we started. In, I know. Right. So you're you're the same age as my middle son, <laughs> Chuck. <laughs> no, we've we've talked we've yeah. talked about that in the past. I always you know, like, not uh, to not, not to out you, but I think you mentioned it earlier. No, so, no, 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 yeah. no. I look, I tease you all the time. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right, Chuck. You became the play by play for the Whalers when they first got here the year I was born. There you go. Yeah, I got no problems. I know. And, and it's, cool. But that's the thing. Like the next generation of fans there. I mean, even though they never saw a Whaler game, I'm sure their parents are now grand parents in some cases mm-hmm. are saying what a great thing it was to have hockey in Hartford but it is a slow burn too uh and and that's where the hurricanes I think have really you, you mentioned them playing 25 years here it's taken that amount of time for hockey to actually be become something that 
is a normal everyday part of the community. It's gone from novelty, something you just kind of did, get on the bandwagon, to there's a robust youth hockey uh, community now yeah. here in North Carolina. My 10-year-old son plays uh, with the Polar Ice House League, and we're going to get to a point where hopefully in the future, if there's more investment and there's more sheets of ice, you're talking about more and more players that are coming. Hopefully college hockey might actually become a thing here rather than it being intramural or uh, uh, club teams like we do with the ice pack in UNC. Because that's another thing that you came from being in the Midwest and being in the Big Ten. They take hockey seriously there. Yeah, Like absolutely. right down to the college level. Yeah, exactly. Like can only, you know, if you take, if you take, it's, it's kind of like how we take basketball around here. Same thing with hockey over there, right? Absolutely, it is, and it's in, like, in the state of hockey is Minnesota, where yeah, they have right. high school, tremendous high school programs. So, never mind just the colleges in the Big Ten and the Northeast. Mm-hmm. But uh, you're right, and and that's the thing that I always wonder about. Uh, we've been here 25 years now; the team has, and uh, I'm just hoping that they're making those kind of inroads that uh, that you're talking about. Because, I think it's there. I mean, I'll give yeah. you an example. Uh, my son had a game this past weekend of this recording. Uh, so we're recording this in February. Yep. And the Canes is at the Wake Competition Center, which is where the Canes practice. And they they were on the same sheet of ice, and the Canes were waiting for them to finish the game. There was a junior Canes game that went long because at the 10U rec, that thing's in an hour. Like, you're on the ice and off the ice in an hour. They yeah. keep it moving, right? But there was a, a junior Canes game that went a little long, which pushed my kid's game back. And then there's Jordan Stahl peeking his head out of the door, like, all right, when are these kids going to wrap up? But the way that the kids realized, oh, wait a minute, the Hurricane players are actually here, and they're about to take the ice, everybody stuck around. They just wanted to see these guys get on the ice, and that gets back to the fabric and the community and things like that. The players get it. And I don't know if it's an NHL player-specific thing versus other sports, but I've always gotten the sense that hockey players seem to understand that community aspect better than any other professional sport. I mean, is that an, you think that's an accurate assessment? Is there something different about hockey players? No, I think the biggest thing is no, no, that's a correct assessment okay. because of well, the way they're brought up because they have so much parental involvement with their youth hockey. Yeah. I mean, think about this. Uh, uh, they see themselves in those kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, once upon a time, uh, the three stall, actually the four stall brothers were being taken around by Henry mm-hmm. uh, to youth hockey games up in Thunder Bay, Ontario. And they uh, they remember the, their roots. And that that's where it comes from. It's a time commitment, man. It's expensive, yeah. Chuck. <laughs> I know. It's expensive. I, I'm trying to talk my grandson out of hockey now. He lives in <laughs> Grand Rapids, Michigan now. He's now 14 and he's gra- he's going into crew if I ain't oh, buying okay. him a boat, I'll get him to paddle, there but, we go. Uh, but he's doing some different things. Chuck, we appreciate it, man. Thank you. My pleasure. A brief history of Triangle Sports, sponsored by Copiers Plus, your local office equipment and solutions provider. Take the mystery out of your printing expenses by scheduling your free print audit today at copiers-plus.com.